Good morning, Grace Point Church. It is so good to see you all this morning. Such a pleasure. Happy 4th of July weekend. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Andrew. I am on staff here at Grace Point Church. I currently serve as the pastoral assistant, and I am a uh, pastor in training. Um, By the abundant grace of God, I am still here after preaching on marriage a couple weeks ago, and uh, so that's a blessing. That's a good thing. They didn't kick me out yet, Um, but I'm looking forward to walking through God's Word with you this morning. Um, Anybody in here ever make a quilt before? Show of hands. I haven't, but show of hands. Cool. Um, Just... Thinking about it, uh, I, I believe my mom still has one from my great-grandma Kate, um, this, this wonderful, beautiful quilt. And quilts are they're just fascinating to me. They're, they, they really are just this unique work of art when you really look at them. And especially the image that I get in my head, um, I just remember all the different patterns and colors and designs that come together to make this really unique piece. Now, I was pondering about quilts on Wednesday. Yes, my life sounds very exciting. And maybe um, some of those aren't, you in here aren't familiar with quilts, but in short, um, just think of like a big and thick blanket with a, a bunch of individual squares that have their own just distinct colors and patterns on them. And they all are stitched together to make this one unique piece, this one beautiful thing. And uh, this is how Wikipedia defines quilts. Yes, I'm using Wikipedia in my sermon. You can source it in college papers now, so I am going to use it now. But a quilt is a multi-layered textile traditionally composed of two or more layers of fabric or fiber. Commonly, three layers are used with a filler material. These layers traditionally include a woven cloth top, a layer of batting or wadding, and a woven back combined using the techniques of quilting. This is the process of sewing on the face of the fabric, and not just the edges, uh, to combine the three layers together to reinforce the material. Stitching patterns can be a decorative element A single piece of fabric can be used for the top of a quilt, but in many cases, the top is created from smaller fabric pieces joined together or patchwork. The pattern and color of these pieces creates the design. Quilts may contain valuable historical information about their creators, visualizing particular segments of history in tangible and textured ways. So there you have it. You know a little something more about quilts. Um, you might be thinking, why, why are we going over all this information about quilts this morning? I'm glad you're curious. I'm glad you asked. What I have come to realize over the course of our walk through First Peter is that when you walk through a whole book or letter in Scripture and really focus on the historical context, the interpretation of Scripture combined with the different preaching styles that you have seen on the Sunday mornings here, whether it be Pastor Tim, uh, Matt Butler, or Brandon, or myself, you will come to see that the beauty of Scripture is that each week, in a way, we are stitching on another square that is this unique pattern, and it's unique in its own gospel fabric and historical information that is, in a way, a part of this large gospel quilt. I say that because it struck me more significantly this last week in listening to Brandon preach, and just the wonderful, wonderful connection he made that Peter's writings 
have this Jesus language that we see from the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5. But also in talking with Brandon over the past couple weeks as we've both been at it um, doing sermon prep and, and just trying to break down the text, I really liked what he had to say in his preparation and reading of God's word. This is what Brandon said to me last week. He said, specifically, what I have tried to do in reading the New Testament letters and more so the apostles, in this case Peter, is seeing how Peter's direct experience of Jesus and the Gospels is a very real influence to the very writing of this letter to the Christians he is talking to. Almost like Peter would be saying, I experienced Jesus firsthand in this way, so this is how we are to be like him. In that line of thinking, in, in that same posture this morning, I think there is something here when Peter is talking about suffering, that not only is he drawing its relation when it already comes to what he's been writing so far within the letter, but also Peter has a specific relationship to the text this morning from his experience and his relationship with Jesus in the Gospels. So as we get started this morning, I I would love to just take a moment and and pray, pray together, and then we will open God's word. Lord, please speak to us this morning through your spirit and through your word. Reveal to us how to have a deeper understanding of suffering and an even deeper understanding of your character and love in the midst of suffering. Father, please give us hearts of flesh that know how to have compassion and empathy. Lead us to mourn with those who mourn and weep with those who weep. Show us how to have deeper fulfillment in the gospel of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Now, as we open our Bibles this morning to 1 Peter chapter 3, here at Grace Point Church, you will need a Bible. We lead, teach, and preach from our Bible. So if you don't have one, please take one of the ones up here at the front tables. We have them in English and in Spanish, or you can download the Bible or YouVersion app on your phone. You can type in Grace Point Church Las Vegas and follow along with us that way, but please have a Bible to, to walk along with us. Sound good? Good. So, while we are in 1 Peter this morning, um, we also will be flipping to some additional passages later on in the Gospels to round out our application. You'll see uh, the Bible passages that we'll be going through. So, we're in 1 Peter this morning, 3, 13 through 18, but we'll also just be ready to be in John chapter 21 and Luke chapter 22. But before we do all that, I think we need to spend a moment to really get a proper understanding of suffering and what Peter is addressing here. The reality is I think we can have two distinctions of suffering. There is general or common suffering. Um, You'll see it on the screen. Suffering that is due to humanity's fallen and evil condition. General or common suffering is this understanding that since sin has entered the world, Since sin has entered the picture and things are not the way God intended them to be, there is general suffering that has nothing to do with being a Christian or a Christ follower. We have suffered for no reason other than the fact that we are fallen human beings in a fallen world. An example is the the tragedy that we see in Ukraine right now. There are people suffering right now in that nation because of the evil and the sin that exists in the world, and the volitional acts that humans are capable of inflicting upon other human beings. 
And that is something that we should, we should mourn very seriously. Then there is Christian suffering. Christian suffering is suffering due to the opposition the world has against those who are followers of Jesus. Or we may even generalize it in, in the suffering that is inflicted upon Christians by the unholy trinity, which is the flesh, the world, and Satan. An example can be looking at the threat of losing one's life in the Middle East or many other nations in Asia right now um, in general when it comes to the vehement opposition against Christianity and the many real dangers that actually come with conversion. Many Christians in hostile nations right now are being wrongfully imprisoned. They are being abused. They are being discriminated against. And they're not only losing their own lives, but the very lives of friends and relatives are being threatened just for having association with them. And I think it's important to understand that there can be some overlap between these two ideals of suffering, that is Christian suffering and general suffering. But we, as the church, we need to have an appropriate response to both. What Peter is writing about in this passage actually ends up being somewhat of an answer to both in terms of action, the course that we take. But more specifically, an answer to the suffering that may come with being a Christ follower. Because if we aren't careful, we as Christians do something when suffering occurs in our lives or in someone else's life that can inflict a lot of harm. I'll give you an example. Um, we'll, we'll take a, a story like Job, for example, um, and uh, we'll, we'll take that story and apply it to someone else who is going through real trials and tribulations. And uh, for those who aren't familiar with Job, Job is this character in the Old Testament. He had wealth. He had land. Um, things were good. He had a ton of children. He was a man of great reputation, of great integrity and character. And God allows a series of events to take place that end up leaving Job with nothing. All of his children pass away. They die. He develops a horrible disease, and Job is just left in this state where he is questioning God and, and why it's all happening. Very long story short, God restores Job. He, he heals him. He gives to Job twice the amount that he lost, and that's a very short and generalized understanding of this book. But the point is, we, we'll do something where we take the book of Job and we'll, we'll use it as our example, and we'll, we'll get quite lazy in having compassion and empathy for those who are going through suffering and trials. We end up using Job as a blanket approach to all suffering and tell people that God planned this suffering in your life, and he is going to return you more than what you've lost. And it generates this false hope regarding present circumstances and the right here and right now, and it builds this false understanding of God's character within the biblical narrative, and it can cause a lot of hurt. But what Peter is doing here in this passage this morning is that I believe Peter is getting quite vulnerable and quite profoundly personal in this passage when it comes to his experience with Jesus from the gospel accounts. And this personal experience of Jesus is the source of what Peter is calling people to do in the midst of suffering when we are following Jesus. So with that, let's jump into the text this morning in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 13 to 18. God's word says, Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? 
But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteousness for the, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. So, Starting off with this passage, I want to still give as much context and understanding to Peter's writing before we flip to the gospel accounts. So beginning with verse 13, he says, Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? Peter is writing this as a rhetorical question to the audience. It immediately is following up what Brandon preached upon last week, and that was the passage where Peter is instructing Christians to not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. He instructs Christians to seek to do good and to pursue peace. Brandon even took it a step further in his brilliant connection with the Sermon on the Mount and Jesus' words of loving our enemies. And Brandon put this so wonderfully, and I'm, I'm just stealing a bunch of his quotes today, so really this is Brandon's sermon. But what Brandon said was, what Jesus is getting at when saying to love, and specifically to love your enemies, it is acting upon a person in such a way that they are benefited, that their greatest good is brought near to their feet by what you have done for them. This teaching by Brandon really convicted myself and, and my own posture last, last week. I really began to sit and just think, do I just have this peaceful indifference to my enemies or people who I perceive as my enemies? Or do I have gospel love for my enemies in the way that Jesus does? And so coming off that instruction, Peter gives us this rhetorical question that is in line with the same theme of an Old Testament proverb, which is Proverbs chapter 16, verse 7. It says, When a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. It's this idea that if, uh, if somebody that is my enemy is causing me good, by their actions, if my enemy is intentionally seeking my benefit, it would be absolutely bizarre to harm them. And if anything, it would win me over to be at peace with them because I am actually being benefited by their behavior toward me. For example, um, have, have you ever been mad at a family member or a sibling or a friend and then they do something nice to you? and you want to stay mad at them. You're like trying really hard to stay mad at them, but then it's hard because they're doing this thing that's making peace with you, and then you almost get more mad about the fact that like your, your, your madness is melting away. But eventually you soften and, and come to peace with them. That's kind of what Peter is talking about here. So Peter is saying, who in the world would harm you if they see that you are a people that is passionate and zealous for doing good? Now, part of the reason it's rhetorical, though, is if we remember, just like a proverb, a proverb is a general statement of how things usually go. 
It's not always how they work, though. Peter is aware that that isn't always the case, and we need to have the same awareness because there are still wicked people that get a a, a horrid and twisted satisfaction of inflicting evil upon others, and there are still those who persecute Christians even though Christians might be seeking to do good. Not to mention, this writing is uh, dated to have been written before the time in which King Nero would have um, actively been persecuting Christians in this era and actually murdered Christians for their faith. He spread lies. He spread slander about the Christian religion. So it would have been a little too odd in this scenario for Peter to be saying, who's going to harm you for being a good Christian? Everybody sitting there listening to him would have been like, um, King Nero, he's, he's killing us all. Do, do you see what's going on? So he's, he's aware that sometimes that is not the case, but Peter is also referring to this eternal mindset that Christians should have that we see in Matthew 10, 28. He says, And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Peter keeps us centered and grounded in the gospel reminder that ultimately our body can be physically harmed in this life. Our emotions, the fabric of our being can be wounded. We can be hurt in this life very seriously. But our souls are in God's hands alone. That our security is in Christ Jesus which continues to be Peter's inspiration for the following verse. When you look at verse 14, he says, But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. And there are two points I want to make of this verse that I think specifically apply to appropriate clarity for, for Christians when it comes to this verse Because Peter is following his rhetorical question with evidence that he is quite aware that suffering is still a very real possibility. The first point he's making, even if you should suffer. Not all Christians will suffer the same way as other Christians, and that should not be our measure of if someone is truly a Christ follower. For example, Christians... Um, if we're honest, in, in our country, uh, do not suffer the same way that persecuted Christians do in hostile nations such as China, Iran, Pakistan, um, and, and many more. If we are honest, Christians get more slander in this nation today because of the political party that most people presume we associate with, which at the end of the day just throws us back in the general majority of how our nation just heinously rebukes one another over political identity rather than religious identity. Again, not, not always because this isn't an absolute because I do have relationships with people that have either been disowned, they have been cast aside by their friends and their family due to their devotion to Jesus, or I've, I've experienced um, relationships where I know people that are really suffering and facing consequences because they have turned from their former sin life and they want to walk in love and obedience to Jesus. So I'm not saying there isn't real suffering here. Please don't hear that because there is, but it's definitely different in comparison. And I believe if we aren't careful, this weird thing happens. It sounds silly, but we get this like suffering envy 
or suffering justification. And, and we, we get this salvific insecurity where we think, I might not be a Christ follower because I'm not suffering the same way as another Christ follower. And, and we base that off of other Christians suffering and, and how we interpret what the Bible has to say about suffering. Point number two is the part of the passage where it says, you will be blessed. I think it's really important to talk about this because this is twofold a little bit. It is not promising a blessing in this life, and we have to be very careful of that. Sometimes, yes. I've seen situations where suffering has brought forth blessing and resolve by the grace of God. But this is back to the, the Job example. When we take a specific story in the Bible where someone faces persecution and we apply it in a literal sense to our personal circumstances, and that's just not appropriate, nor is it accurate, because you're going to run into some massive holes and doubts, and you could really rattle not only your own faith, but someone else's faith for that matter, when you do witness the suffering of Christians that doesn't come to this blessed resolve in this current life. And this actually goes back to the Sermon on the Mount in uh, Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, verse 10 says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The blessing is twofold in that in your suffering, if you are drawn closer to the love and to the security that we have in Jesus, then praise and thanks be to God. And then the next blessing being on the other side of the cross, meaning when you die after this life, when you are dwelling with the Lord for all eternity, you will be blessed. Now, this does not minimize our compassion and our empathy that we should have when our brothers, our sisters are in the midst of suffering. It should more so bring us to this posture that leads us to mourn, and to pray earnestly to God and want to care for that person in any and every way that we can because our compassion and our care for someone could be the very act that reveals God's divine love and care for that person. We can touch someone through the working of the Spirit that is a glimpse of Jesus. And if you're in here this morning and you have suffering going on in your life today, I hope, I hope that you can see, if you open yourself up to it, God has placed a church family around you that is for you, that loves you, and that wants to be there for you. And that is a glorious expression of God's love for you. Because Peter continues in saying, verse 14, have no fear of them, which can be taken in two ways. One of them being the first point, do not fear what the world fears, the, the loss of status, uh, the loss of wealth or reputation or even one's life. So he says, don't be afraid of what they are afraid of. And the second point, the second understanding is in the sense of don't fear them. Don't fear the people that might be the cause of your suffering. And this is hard. I think this is so much harder than we like to admit because in theory, it sounds good. It sounds great. But honestly, we fear things all the time. What the world thinks of us, what our friends think of us, 
what our family thinks of us. We fear what is going to happen tomorrow if this does or doesn't happen. We fear gas prices going up. If you're like me, you fear spiders and scorpions. I mean, it's a big deal. But when we don't see the light at the end of the tunnel, when we don't see that the resolution is near and right around the corner, if we're honest, we fear. We fear the worst because that is who we are as imperfect human beings. And what I think Peter is getting at is our whole response to it, to deny that posture, that fear. And if I'm honest, this is also easy to say to someone when we have not really experienced suffering. Like, I have to be honest. I've, I've experienced some stuff in my life and, and definitely have had some hardships and had some tensions and some relationships because of my faith in Jesus. But I also, I grew up in the church. And if I'm honest, I am, I am grateful to God because I have not experienced um, some of the sufferings in the ways that many other Christians and even non-Christians have. So I try to be incredibly understanding in this passage, in this particular topic, because I think there is so much more here that we can never cover in its totality. But I think there is this truth to when you hear someone who has experienced the presence of Jesus in the midst of their trials and their hurts and their long sufferings, we should draw near to them to glean from what they have to say and their affections for Christ because I think there's something so beautiful there. And later on, I think we will see that Peter has this deep connection with the passage today, that he is unveiling something from his own heart in the midst of these words. But for the time being, continuing on to verse 15, but in your hearts... Honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with a gentleness and respect. At the beginning of this verse, Peter gives this reminder that our motivations in all of this have to be in the security in our hearts that we have with Jesus, that Christ is holy and that he is the Lord. We hear this language today, though, all the time, and I think sometimes, because it's so common in our vernacular, in our language, we don't grasp the weight. But it is the recognition of Christ as Yahweh, which in the culture at the time, this still would have been a scandalous idea in that we are worshiping a man named Jesus as Lord, as Yahweh, and we're saying that he died, and then he was resurrected. To worship a God that died in this culture would have made no sense to philosophers of the time, and Christians really were looked at as buffoons. But if we have it truly at the center of who we are, then it is our regard it is our honor for Christ that Peter instructs us to have this very, very posture, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. This isn't in the context of Christian apologetics or professional, the professional academic sense of it because that wouldn't have been a thing in this time. 
but rather what he is saying is that we should have this posture that by the way you live as a Christ follower, even with your suffering, even with your persecution, even when things go badly and poorly, be ready for people to ask you this question, why do you have hope? And I think that's something that we have to ask ourselves regularly when we rehearse the gospel in preparation. We have to ponder this question So if you leave this morning, I hope you take this with you and just ponder at the question, why do I have hope in Jesus? Just ponder it. It's not to make you feel bad or trick you or I hope, if anything, it inspires you to reflect on the coming hope that we have in Jesus in the gospel, the promise of salvation and the eternal dwelling we still have that we have to look forward to with Jesus. I love what uh, Karen Jobes has to say on this. She says, It is the very hope that separates and alienates them from pagans and invites the kind of conflict that Peter has in view. The hope in you should be understood not so much as the hope within an individual believer, but as the hope that is among believers, namely their shared belief in the gospel of Jesus Christ that defines and unites them as Christians. And I think that Karen Jobs is on to a brilliant point that we can't spend too much time on this morning, but there is something so true to the fact that if we constantly individualize our faith, if we constantly individualize our suffering and just make it about us, we will individualize our understanding of God's word, and then we will individualize our understanding of the faith in Christ And after a while, we will actually end up being quite isolated and lonely. And that is so much more crushing than I think we realize. But looking back at the verse, we we do it in this manner when when we give a defense for the faith. We, We do this in a response in that we are gentle. We have respect. All too often, if, if I'm being honest, I am so guilty of this. I've answered somebody with such a poor tone when it comes to my faith in Christ. And I've had more of a hostile posture towards them. And so many Christians today claim persecution for voicing their faith when the truth is, I like how Pastor Tim likes to put it, you're just being a jerk. Christ was harshest with the religious people of his day and the gentlest with the lost. And I think we need to sit sometimes and contemplate that ourselves in doing the same. Looking at verses 16 and 17, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame, for it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil This language of having a good conscience is Peter telling his readers that if you are going to give a defense for your faith and for your hope in Christ, be living in the same manner. Kind of the old old phrase, practice what you preach type of deal. I uh, I was talking with someone and we were discussing how when we spend time in God's word, but also in the, uh, the endeavor of sermon prep, it's, it's always enjoyable. You learn so much through, through it. But there's always a point where uh, it actually becomes quite convicting. 
In the middle of sermon prep, you, you experience this tension where you are preaching this text, and then you are also in this state and posture where you feel convicted and led to repentance and where you see that you have fallen short of the, the very text that you are preaching. And that is what Peter, I think, is referring to here. He's saying, live so that when you do share the gospel of Jesus and share how we are supposed to live, you can have this clear conscience about yourself, that you are living out exactly what you claim to be living out, especially with the next part of this verse being that when people slander you or revile you for good behavior, at the end of the day, they look silly. It puts them to shame before the Lord because it's just not true. And in the end, they slandered you because your good behavior is indicting them. And it's convicting them of their behavior. It's like, um, have any of you ever had someone get mad at you just because uh, you, you don't participate in the same activity or whatever it is? Not because you, you condemned them or not because you said it was bad, you just shared that that wasn't how you like to spend your time. And the person gets mad. Anybody ever? Just me? Maybe? Maybe. That's what this is talking about, that your behavior is indicting them because Peter's following point is it's better to be doing the right thing and the good thing and having to suffer for it if that's God's will than for doing evil And maybe not suffering in the immediate here and now, but you will suffer for it later. Evil has very real consequences in this life and eternal consequences, specifically in the Christian's case. While we are redeemed by Jesus, we are made right by God, thanks be to Christ, sinful action still has very real life consequences that we will have to endure. And I picture Peter really trying to just communicate this in this way. Do the next right thing. Which, Frozen fans in here, you probably recognize that from the movie. I haven't seen it, but everybody I kept saying that to this week was like, that's Frozen. That's Frozen. I'm saying the Bible said it first, but that's Frozen. But out of our love for Jesus, just do the next right thing. Because looking at Verse 17, it says, For it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will. In my prep for this sermon this morning, there was so much content on this specific topic alone and just all the theologians, what what they're talking about, what Peter's trying to convey. I wish I could have included all of it, but in this verse, we have to address a question that I think exists for Christians and even non-Christians alike. The question is, does a loving God truly will the Christian to suffer? I think Karen Jobes has a wonderful take on this. She says, Suffering is a possibility, but not a certainty. The will of God might possibly will a Christian to suffer for doing what is good. Peter affirms that it is not God's purpose to make Christians suffer. J.H. Eliot expresses it well, the qualification, if this should be God's will, refers to suffering for doing what is right and not simply suffering per se. The point is not that God wills suffering, but that God wills doing what is right 
rather than doing what is wrong, even if and when this results in suffering. God wills for his people to live faithfully and to do what is right, even if the response of an unbelieving world causes them to suffer. This is quite a different concept from God causes Christians to suffer in this life for their spiritual well-being. Job's would continue on giving a deeper dive into our look upon Jesus that, yes, sometimes there is willed suffering, specifically when we look at Jesus as our example, that God willed Christ to suffer. And if that was the case for Christ, we can also have a similar understanding that in the path of a believer, there is this real possibility of intentional and purposeful suffering. Looking at the screen, once again, Job states it like this. Christ suffered purposefully and only for a time. His suffer, suffering was the way to his victory over all beings and authorities. Those who share in Christ's suffering because of their faith in him will not be defeated, but will also share in Christ's victory. It's having that maturity of understanding that, yes, sometimes there will be suffering that is place maybe ordained in our life that will bring us deeper spiritual fruition or maturing. But leading from that into verse 18, this is where I want to share the personal gospel connection that I alluded to earlier when we started, because I believe Peter is sharing something here that is so much more than just these words on the page. Peter, in writing this to his audience, is giving this telling testimony in the midst of his own failure when it came to doing this very thing. If you flip your Bibles, it will also be on the screen to Luke chapter 22, verses 54 to 62. It says, Then they seized him and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house, and Peter was following at a distance. When they had kindled the fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, This man also was with him, but he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, You also are one of them. But Peter said, Man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, Certainly this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you were talking about. And immediately while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Peter is exhibit A to the very argument that he is making in his letter and the failure that can come in even trying to do what he is communicating. In this passage, we see Peter fail to do the following. Peter fails to be zealous for what is good. Peter fails by denying Jesus to avoid possible suffering and persecution. Peter fails to not fear the people or to not be troubled. Peter fails to be prepared to make a defense. Peter fails by doing what is evil in denying Jesus, and he still suffers for it, and it leads him to weeping bitterly. Peter, 
the one who at times was so zealous for Jesus, is putting himself on notice, making himself the prime example of failing to do the very thing that he is writing now, almost 30-ish years later, to Christians in a hostile Greco-Roman culture. But I want you to see something. There is something so poetically beautiful about what Peter is doing here, looking at John 21, verses 15 to 22. This was after Jesus' resurrection. He says, When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he had said to him a third time, Do you love me? I picture Peter at this point on the brink of tears, especially knowing that after the third denial, Jesus looked at him And that image had to have just been seared in his mind at this point. I feel he has to be looking into the eyes of Jesus and just reliving this moment. And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. This very familiar language in Peter's instruction of doing what Jesus commands, even if you suffer for it, to still do it. Even after Peter just heard Jesus tell him that he was going to end up dying a martyr's death, Peter would end up being nailed to a cross upside down and crucified for the faith. And Jesus says to him, follow me. Mirroring that 1 Peter 3.17 language, it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will. And I feel this connection is so richly based on Peter's personal experience with Jesus because even the ending part of the passage in these verses, 20 to 22, Peter hears that he is going to die this martyr's death and looks at John. And of course, in Peter-like fashion, he goes, what about him? What about John? And look at what Jesus says. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who also had leaned back against him during the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Peter's entire love And hope is anchored in the forgiveness he received from the risen Son of God in Christ. He looked Jesus in the eyes and was the recipient of grace and mercy. He was issued a glorious purpose for the kingdom of heaven. 
What Peter is writing to the people is this confession and this mighty proclamation of redemption that he is saying, I know that suffering is ahead of me. It's ahead of us. How that will look for each of us individually, that's for God to decide. But I can face it because I have faced the hopelessness and bitter suffering of not having Christ. And I assure you, this is far sweeter and far better. So keep your eyes on Jesus and keep going. Because Peter is echoing the finishing verse in 1 Peter 3.18. Christ suffered once for my sins. He was righteous. I was unrighteous. But he suffered so that he might bring me to God. And I think Peter would be shouting with a victorious voice, Jesus has brought me to God. Being put to death in the flesh and making me alive in the Spirit. Let our hope be by the, the power of the Spirit to live for Christ in all the good that we do, regardless of the consequences, whether it means hardship and suffering or not. Let us do the next right thing. Let us be rooted in his forgiveness and mercy when we fail and fix our eyes over and over again on the glory of Jesus. Let us pray. Father, it is, it is always a challenge when we really endure suffering in this life, whether it be for your kingdom or whether it just be because of the fallen nature of this world. But Lord, remind us just how much you are with us, even in the darkest of days. Remind us how to love one another and just shine the example of Jesus. Lord, in our darkest days, may we just cling more and more to the light and to the glory of your gospel and your son, Jesus Christ. Teach us and mold us to walk in faith and repentance and love and devotion. Let us have compassion for those around us. Let us weep with those who weep and mourn with those who mourn. Let us love to their benefit, all to bring you glory for your kingdom and your name. In Jesus' most precious and holy name we pray. Amen.